welcome to the Delish Guest List podcast, a deep dive into the lives and work of Hong Kong's crazy food and beverage industry leaders, hosted by The Beat Asia magazine. This episode, we speak with Richard Ekebus, Director of Culinary at the landmark Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Hong Kong and French fine dining restaurant Amber, awarded two Michelin stars and one Michelin green star in 2022. As the native Dutchman recounts a two long decade love affair with his adopted hometown of Hong Kong, innovating with Hout Cuisine and the challenge of success in the eyes of Michelin star. Enjoy! Hello listeners in Hong Kong, Asia and beyond. We are sitting down today with Richard Ekebus, Culinary Director of Food and Beverage Offerings at the landmark Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Hong Kong and Executive Chef at Amber, Hong Kong's top-rated two Michelin-starred and one Michelin Green Star fine dining restaurant, serving innovative dishes and challenging cuisine to a city eager for more. Hailing from Southwest Netherlands, Dutchman Ekebus has waged war on many issues plaguing food in Hong Kong in his fight to shift conversations. Food wastage, sustainable practices, overuse of dairy, sugar and salt. At Amber, he continues to innovate. Richard, thank you so much for uh, jumping on the uh, podcast with us. Yeah, I'm excited to be with you here. You have, I would say, more than up to three decades of experience in F&B, starting when you were 15, you know, cooking with your grandparents at the family restaurant. Why? You know, well, why become the, a chef? That was in the time that child labor was not a thing. You know, (laughs) yeah, I I was sort of predestined to work in hospitality industry and not because of my parents, because they actually did not want any of their kids to end up in hospitality. That was a very clear message in our home. They unfortunately did not succeed because both my two sisters and myself all ended up in hospitality eventually. I learned a lesson from that, not to say no to your children. But yeah, I, I, I was working often. I was often seen in the restaurant of my grandparents or in the kitchen of my grandmother, because it was a very intriguing environment, you know, to see that from flour and a few eggs, you could make an incredible waffle that was, you know, incredibly delicious. So I went to study as to become an engineer. And, you know, I thought I would become an engineer. And then in the weekends, I started to work a weekend job. It's a very common thing in the, in, in the Netherlands when you're a student that you have a, a weekend job. Your parents would pay for your housing and your study materials and so forth. But if you wanted to have some fun time, you needed to get, get <laughs> your money yourself. So that's how I ended up back into hospitality. And then at times, the restaurant that I was working for would call me in the middle of the week. I needed to come back in. And that became a little bit more often because somebody felt sick. And at the end of the day, my studies were sort of put on the side. And, and yeah. My father wasn't too happy with that at the time, you know, mm-hmm. that I moved on working full-time into hospitality. Wow. So your parents assume that you're going to become an engineer tomorrow. Is that the plan after 20 yeah, years? Yeah, they're still thinking that something <laughs> is happening. That maybe one day, you know, I, I would become that engineer. Now, sure. now, I think they have made peace with my decisions and with the path I've taken. And uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the steps towards this Michelin success, this this name blazing in Hong Kong, the trailblazing, why did you make that step to really focusing yourself in the kitchen? And how did that sort of come to 2004 when you came to Hong Kong? I think really because of the love of food, I really enjoyed making from, you know, you start in the morning, you walk into a chiller and you see all these ingredients. And then a couple of hours later, you have an incredible meal. 
And, and what I really enjoyed was the camaraderie that existed in these kitchens and how you, as a team, created something incredible. And then if you had time to sneak into, had a sneak peek into the restaurant, you saw all the guests having an incredible time. That's, that was probably one of the most rewarding feelings and, and a real sense of, of, of completion, you know, to have, you know, created an incredible evening for, for, for a guest. So it's purely based on a very simple idea of creating incredible food and, and creating incredible experiences. Was it a connection to Haute Cuisine? Was it a connection to French cuisine or was it just Dutch? Well, Dutch cuisine, you know, we are a Protestant nation, so food was not to be enjoyed in the whole day. So we do not have a repertoire that you would see in, in, in France. You know, food is pretty rudimental mm. originally. You know, if you talk about the origins of Dutch cuisine, it's very rudimental. It's definitely not a fine dining sort of cuisine. So cuisines in restaurants in, in Holland are sort of French-based in a way, so with some influences from French cuisine. So, uh, yeah, it was predominantly French foods. H- having said that, I think, of course, the whole movement of Noma and the Locavorian and the foraging and the usage of local ingredients have significantly changed the landscape of, of Dutch cuisine today. But that is not the traditional landscape of Dutch cuisine. I come from a region, the southwest of Holland. It's a very rich region, very rich in, in seafoods. We have incredible lamb. We have incredible vegetables and fruits because it's, it's they, we call them sort of, it's like a delta, so to speak. So there's a lot of water around us. Uh, it used to be all islands and eventually, you know, the Dutch, we are very good in making land from water. And that's now is all becoming one body of land, so to speak. So you can easily access these former islands. But yeah, so it has an exceptional diversity of products. Uh, and also, if you would look into Holland, where most Michelin star chefs come from, particularly, you know, the, I would say the better chefs, they actually, a lot of them come from this region because it has such a big diversity of products. And I think that that has shaped, in a way, uh, that region, but also the cuisine of that region. So it's very seafood-driven, and you can see in my cuisine today, it's still very seafood-driven. It's very vegetable-driven as well because of the, the richness of that region. And that, that are things that I still carry on in what I do in, in Amber. So were you intent when you came to Hong Kong in 2004 to bring these principles that you sort of matured over the time in the beginning of your career to, to, to the city? Well, I'm a little bit of a mess up because I've worked in four continents. I have needed to adapt myself every single time sure. to a different culture, to a different palate, to a different expectation, to different standards, so to speak, of, of eating. And, and that, that altogether has shaped me. Having said that, I think that everybody gets shaped by the first 15 years of their life, regardless, by their parents, but they've seen most of your ethos are sort of established within that period, in my opinion. So, yeah, I think that that is just built into my DNA. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the beginning of the landmark Mandarin Oriental story as executive chef. What was the, what was the feelings about coming to the Victoria Harbour, you know, the same place that they reclaim, reclaim land by out of Dutch. islands? By the Dutch. By the Dutch. <laughs> and they do the same thing here. What parallels did you sort of see back in your homeland flying Dutchman coming over here and working at an established five-star hotel. Yeah. Well, first of all, to work for Mandarin was even, when I was approached, was already quite a, a legendary brand, hotel brand, very small, niche, boutique hotel brand. 
had a huge reputation worldwide. The, the hotels such as the Mandarin, of course, the legends here in Hong Kong and the Oriental at the time, as, as they called it in Bangkok, were absolutely benchmark institutions for hospitality. So I had made a shift a few decades sort of earlier from three Michelin star restaurants to hotels. And of course, when you work in a hotel environment, you hear more about what is the benchmark for the industry. And, and always Mandarin Oriental came and the Oriental came up as the benchmark. So after moving around a little bit, working in Africa, Mauritius, and then try to open my restaurant in New York. And unfortunately, that didn't happen because of 9-11. I ended up in the Caribbean. And that was at Sandy Lane, which is quite a legendary hotel as well. And I, one of the guests was one of the GMs of Mandarin Oriental London, Liam, who came as a regular guest. And he, we, we became very friendly. And he said, you know, Mandarin Oriental looks for people like you. You know, it was his, you know, see, even a lot of GMs, they're always poaching a little bit. And, and he said, you know, it would be great to have somebody like you in our company. And initially, they made a proposal to me to take over the old Mandarin, as we call it in Hong Kong. But I had worked in Sandy Lane, which is very similar, a lot of DNA, a lot of luggage as a hotel, so very established, <laughs> uh, a lot of tradition. And I said, listen, after Sandy Lane, I want to do something that, where I can put my, my mark on. And, and that, that went the way. And then not much longer after that, they came, well, listen, we are building a second hotel in Hong Kong. It is to be built still. It has to be one of the best. So are you interested? And I did a cook-off in Miami because I was still in the time in the Caribbean. That was a success. And then I was flown in into Hong Kong, did another cook-off for all the big boys of Mandarin Oriental. Wow. And I was hired. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. What did Amber mean in the beginning to you? And how has that sort of transformed over the years, I'd say up to 2015, when you had a bit of a refresh in 2019 with the renovation? Is it still the same amber or is the product changing? Oh, of course, because everything changed in life. A big example for me is always a brand like a Hermes. You know, a Hermes is a brand that stands, in my opinion, is the most luxurious brand on the planet. But yet every year they seem to be able to evolve into staying relevant within, within design, within fashion. So, and that is how I see Amber also need to evolve. It's also adapting to the times. And I think the main reason why Amber never was static is because of, I think, well, first of all, there always been the same person behind Amber, which is refreshing because many restaurants, even in Hong Kong, have, of course, a change of the guard, so to speak. And I have been always behind it. And I'm an incredible curious person. And that is from child on. I have an OCD sort of ability if i want to learn something about something in particular or if i want to master something then i will do everything i can to sort of get behind that i had moments that i needed to know everything about the planets and i wrote you know hundreds of books about the solar system and mm. then all of a sudden then i knew a little bit more about how the solar system works and i have that with everything so i have an incredible curiosity i read a lot i actually i'm moving apartments at the moment and I packed 55 boxes of books. And that is only half of what I own because the other half is in my office here. That's so more than my father. Now. My father's a professor and he had 50 boxes yeah, moving so to 55. New York. That's... So I must have in my office another 30 boxes, I would wow. say. So that's a lot of boxes of books. You know, Ikea loves me because every time <laughs> I need to buy shelves because they all drop to pieces because they're heavy books. And, and so 
we, we went to Ikea already and buy new bookshelves <laughs> because we need to move to a new apartment and they just hold up for however long we stay in the apartment. So, so yeah, so I have books about everything and it's, and I'm a constant reader. Actually, my wife convinced me about, about four years ago to move to Kindle. So actually I bought, <laughs> I buy significantly less books. It's all digital now. So there's an improvement. Sure, sure, there's sure, an improvement. Sure, sure. I still have a love for very big ass books. So, Encyclopedias, you know the uh, the Asuline books. Oh and, wow! Uh, you know, like the ones on the easel. Oh, wow. I just love those books. You can't carry them; it's, <laughs> they're too heavy. So, so books is my thing, and knowledge is my thing. So, I, I'm incredibly curious. So, because of the fact that I'm so curious, I'm never settling for what I'm doing now. I always look like, how can we evolve? How can we make it better? How can we improve on what we're doing today. And I think that sure. if you look at what Ember was and Ember t- is today, it's, it's significantly different. The common uh, denominator is that I'm still behind it, but mm. everything else have evolved considerably, in my opinion. I guess the famous joke goes, the top 10 restaurants in London are all French, mm. and French dining has this 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 grasp on the whole F&B industry, fine dining F&B industry across the world. How do you innovate on a cuisine that's celebrated, that earns Michelin stars, but also embraces the traditional side. I think the fact that I worked in four different areas before four continents and my ability to adapt is to my ability to listen to the feedback that I receive on a daily basis and sort of process within my little brain and sort of make certain adjustments in what I do. And I think that if you would see Amber's cuisine is really, I mean, it's, it is a unique cuisine and there's, there's probably as much people that hate it as people that love it because I think it has a very unique signature. But it is 100% adapted to what I believe that people in Hong Kong would appreciate. So first of all, the decision to eliminate dairy was purely based on the fact that the majority of people in Asia are lactose intolerant. Absolutely. So, so <laughs> we're pretty stupid continue to serve extremely heavy meals full of cream and butter sure. to a clientele that absolutely is unable to digest it. So actually leave your restaurant feeling absolutely bloated and uncomfortable and probably having on top of that the shits for two days. <laughs> so we have to adapt. You know, that is, that we, we're, I'm not cooking for myself, I'm cooking for my guests. So that was one of the main reasons. Then uh, my search for umami, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I came to Hong Kong, I had a, an understanding of umami because I would say that 15 to 20 years ago in Western in Western books, we started to talk about umami as, as the fifth taste. It was sort of a very new sure. idea for Western chefs to explore umami. Until then, we only knew umami from a bag of crisps because of the MSG that was put into the, into the mix of the paprika chips or whatever chips that you had. So my search of umami in my food is totally related to Asian people. That is probably the food that people in Asia are most excited about, umami. The Japanese are, the Chinese are, all the fermentations we have in, in, in Asian and Cantonese cuisine mm. uh, are all in the search of umami. So, so our cuisine is really adapted to that. So umami and then also, of course, dairy-free. Another big one is you, cannot, you, you must be stupid not to acknowledge that Cantonese cuisine is all about mouthfeel. It doesn't matter what you eat in Cantonese cuisine. If you eat crispy piglets, uh, you know, the very thin dough cake with the crispy skin of the pig. If you eat Peking duck, 
if you eat a dim sum, I mean, that's the ultimate, the ultimate sort of mouthfeel thing. No, it's a small thing. It's a one-biter, and then everything happens in your mouth. So Asian people are extremely, and particularly Hong Kong people, are extremely sensitive to mouthfeel. And again, that has been integrated within our cooking. So, yeah, of course I have a head start because I've been here 18 years, and by making mistakes and doing stupid things, you know, I also did a sweet and sour dish when I came to Hong Kong and I thought that people would really love that and they loaded it, really loaded it. So I, I have learned, you know, I would never attempt to do another sweet and sour dish on my on oh. my menu because that's the ultimate guaylo dish, you know, the sweet and sour pork. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I have learned a lot in the 18 years that I'm here. So I'm definitely wiser and probably have a better understanding than than probably most chefs in Hong Kong of what, what, what people like in Hong Kong. And I've really mm. sort of shaped that into my cooking. So you love Cantonese cuisine? Oh, yeah. It's that... my favorite cuisine on the planet. Really? Why? Because it's incredible. I, I love Cantonese food because, well, first of all, I love dim sum. I think it's the most beautiful art. And I've never launched myself in learning it because I, I'm super impressed by it. But I also see, see it as very daunting to make it very well. It's, it's an incredible skill. And, and really what shocks me in Hong Kong is that it is a, a, a dying art. So there's a lot of very few young people that want to learn how to make dim sum, which I think is, is incredible. So the future of dim sum is basically factory-made dim sums because I think you know, the real masters that you have in Hong Kong, and there's quite a few, are disappearing. You know, mm. All of them are, are in their 60s now. And yeah, so, so dim sum, I think, is incredible. The barbecue of Cantonese food is incredible. Even rice and noodle dishes are incredible. I love to eat vegetables in, in Chinese restaurants. If I can choose tomorrow going to <laughs> Noma or going to a really good Cantonese restaurant, I would choose that Cantonese restaurant anytime. And, and I love Noma, don't get me wrong. Mm. I'm saying Noma because <laughs> it's sort of in the press at the moment. Everybody talks about Noma sure. and the closure of Noma. But um, no, anytime soon, I would prefer to go to very good Cantonese just popping in to say if you've enjoyed this episode so far check out the beat.asia for more exciting content just like this the beat asia is the fastest growing regional publication for local news happenings culture and more so be sure to check us out at the beat.asia okay let's get back to richard Have you ever attempted to draw your passion, your love for Cantonese cuisine and, and penetrate it into the menus in Amber? Or is that something that you want to keep separate? Yeah, we have done that. I mean, some people have taught me some things. Like I was taught how to make an XO sauce once. And, wow. and I did a dish with XO sauce. And, and I should not go into these sort of fusion fusion experiences. It's not made for, for, for Amber. And it's not made. It's not appreciated in Hong Kong either. So... Having said that, the, the, the learning of how to make XO sauce has actually opened a whole lot of new opportunities for me of how I see food and how you can basically extract a lot of umami from a dried seafood. So we, we use that a lot. With the winning of your one Michelin Green Star last year in 2022, has this been a sustained effort over the years to focus on sustainability good food making practices as well bringing amber in line with the rest of the world world's best restaurants and becoming vegan or shunning away from harmful products is that just the success in 2022 well first of all it's it's not a new venture i mean when when i came to hong kong i was i was 
flabbergasted by the city sense of overconsumption. The hunger for protein, the hunger for the latest fashion, the hunger for the biggest new car, uh, the hunger for anything that is expensive. I mean, just walk around the harbor and the amount of lights that are on, you cannot ignore that that has a carbon footprint. So from the start, you know, when I came in, f- things that I was that I was brought up with, such as segregating waste, I asked basically Hong Kong land at the time, so how do we segregate waste here? And they looked at me like, what do you mean? Where do we put glass, where we put metal, where we put plastic, where we put paper? And it was a pretty new sort of idea for Hong Kong at the time. And basically, we, we went on that journey, things that for me were pretty logical and common. We started to integrate in this hotel. And then the, the abundance of seafood, you know, Hong Kong is one of the largest consumer of seafood on the planet, about 79 kilos per capita per year, which is incredible. And of course, the huge hunger in Hong Kong for exotic seafoods, so the items that nobody should eat. You know, sharkers, for example, because these these are under significant pressure today. And we started to make change and started to make bold statements, got slapped on the wrist a couple of times by Mandarin Oriental for making statements about things like shark fin, but eventually have helped me, you know, contributed to shaping policy within Mandarin Oriental. I always say every company needs a rebel and I'm voluntarily being that rebel and making sure that we do the things that maybe are controversial at times, but that are the right things to do. So we have done many things. Eight years ago, we started to eliminate single-use plastic, which really made sense and now is making sense. Also, Mandarin Oriental adopted that as a policy because beginning of this year, all hotels worldwide will not use any single-use plastic items within their hotel. So there's a lot of things that we've been doing that has drive and change on the larger scale. And also a lot of things that we did in this very small hotel has cross-pollinated even within the conglomerate of Jardine, Mm. where now sustainability is center staged and sort of getting a lot of focus where change is coming very rapidly, in my opinion. Do you think the diner at Amber a decade ago or in the beginning would recognize the Amber in 2023? Not everything. Yeah, I think we have made big leaps, but but, but that is what food should be, no? Food evolves. I mean, do you still eat the same as 10 years ago? You have moved on and you have... So, so food should evolve and food should, you know, there should be a recognizable line, you know, a sort of a DNA that, that sort of, that people still understand that there is a sense of place. We're not like a collection of all different trends around the world. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying always to operate within, within that sort of line of what I believe is the direction. And that's why we created things like a manifesto, so to make sure that everybody understands in the team where we're going. You know, uh, not a lot of restaurants have a manifesto. We have a manifesto at multiple points saying, "Well, this is what the DNA of Man- of Landmark and Amber is about," and and it's important to keep everybody accountable. So every time we make a dish, or we select a wine, or we change a sequence of service, we look at the manifesto, we say, yes, does it sort of tick all the boxes? Well, not quite. So we need to change it and adapt it accordingly. Sure. I think you're, you're one of the few chefs in the world that has held on to their two Michelin stars for more than a decade, a considerable length of time in, in, food, in the food scene internationally. How does that feel for you to have these two Michelin stars and then the green star? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's incredible amount of trust that Michelin is putting in us. I think like all restaurants, we're going through highs and lows. 
lobbying the social unrest where restaurants all of a sudden ended up empty. Then we were immediately after that graced with, with a pandemic. Having said that, yeah, I mean, we have done very well. We have, we have not sold our soul during these difficult times. We didn't start to put food in catering boxes and so forth. We said, okay, this is what we do. And however we're going to do it, we're going to make sure that we do it in the way that we feel that we are comfortable with. And we just, we just looked into how can we do things differently. The great thing of Hong Kong is its adaptability and its way of sort of reinventing itself every time. It never and dies. It never dies. So, so during the pandemic, we really became very clever in how we run our business. And I think actually it makes us as a business way better moving forward. And, and, and I believe that, you know, businesses that prevail after situations like this or crises like this will become way better formats of what they used to be. So I think we are a way better restaurant than before. We operate way better. We look way better after our team. In the time during the pandemic where everybody was worried about how we're going to make money, how we're going to survive, we were like, how are we going to look after our team? How can we make sure that they're being looked after? How are we going to make sure that their well-being is considered? So we started to organize things we call LMO Fit. So we started to do outings and runs. We were close for dinner. So all of a sudden at dinner time, we went on a hike, a night hike with everybody. We started to runs. We started to yoga. We started to do all these things to give back also to the staff and to make sure that they felt that they were looked after. Mm. So in the 18th continued year of operation in 2023, how are you celebrating the anniversary? But what does 2023 mean for Amber? You know, Hong Kong, that's going to be back. Hong Kong that's going to be growing from four years of pain. Well, actually, we have done remarkably well, you know, as everybody has really complained. And, and I think there should be a message in that. It, it's that we have been so vocal about our sustainability efforts and how we want to give back to society and to how we want to be a better operator, be more considerate of how we do our business. Is that really in a time of pandemic really resonated with a lot of people? And actually, they really came to support us in large numbers. So actually, we have done remarkably, remarkably well. We gave everybody four months bonus this year or last year in this hotel. So I think we have done well. It has been very challenging, you know, no doubt. We, you know, we've been, I've, I've definitely grown gray hair, but but I think we have done extremely well. And we think that moving forward, we will do extremely well because the, the whole sort of reinvention of the seventh floor here with Amber being part of was just in the middle of social unrest when we opened. So we never really, we never really tapped into the success of that fully because we were always working within huge constraints since the moment we opened the doors. So... I think the world is very keen to discover that floor because most people have not seen it. You know, I mean, for more than three years, people have not been able to come to Hong Kong. And finally, my last question before we go to the next round is how does Amber fit into Hong Kong's bustling F&B space? What does it mean for, for the city? Well, I hope that we are an important part of the city's success. We are definitely a very important part of the development of talent within the city. If you look today at any restaurants, there is somebody running that restaurant or bar that came through our doors. You know, we have, we have trained an incredible amount of Michelin star chefs here in Hong Kong and top bartenders uh, of Hong Kong that came through our walls. So I think that what we have is definitely, it is the place where you can get really a very, very good training, very good foundation. 
and where you're set up for your own successes afterwards. So I think if there is something that I am extremely proud of, then it's definitely that one. Beautiful. Now for the Buzzfire round. We're going to ask you some quick questions with less than a few seconds to think of an answer, Richard. Are you ready? Yeah, fire. Here we go. You have 30 minutes to create a quick dinner at home. What are you making? I take some ham out of the fridge and I make it a little toast, crack a tomato, crush it with a little bit of garlic, and then I spread it on toast with the ham on top, and that's that's my meal. Beautiful. More like two minutes rather than thirty, but yeah, well, efficient. Yeah, yeah. I don't like I don't cook at home, so yeah. I'm actually the guy that walks to the wine cellar and crack open a bottle, and my wife will make in thirty seconds <laughs> or thirty minutes to the dinner. So. We're going on to the next question. If you had to drink wine from one country for the rest of your life, where would it be and why? France, and then Burgundy in particular, because. It is the most beautiful wine. It's a single grape, and it makes the most beautiful... Smooth. Uh, yeah. So it's something that I can say probably in Hong Kong that I have contributed a little bit to in amber in the drinking patterns of Hong Kong, because Hong Kong, when we came, was a Bordeaux-driven city. And I said, no way, we're going to be a Burgundy-driven restaurant. And I said, you're not going to get away with that. And we did. <laughs> and we changed drinking forever. Do you prefer a beach holiday or a city? Beach, because I've lived in islands for quite a while, so... We still have a home in Mauritius, so... If you could muster the courage and you had unlimited funds and potential to open another restaurant, what type of cuisine, what type of concept would it be? Uh, I still want to open a Mauritian restaurant, which is really incredible foods. It's, it's, it's a mixed culture of Indian, Creole, Chinese, and British food, funny enough. Wow. And it's... It's one of the most comforting meals. You know, if my, my wife cooks Mauritian and there's about eight different dishes, five different chutneys and six different chutneys, as we call it, little sort of salsa, so to speak, that's like a real feast for the palate. Do you so, think Hong Kong would? I'm not so sure, you know, but I would do it vegetarian because ah. I think the, the food, the vegetarian food in Mauritius is incredible. Fantastic. On date night with your wife, what restaurants and bars are you visiting in, in Hong Kong? Our date nights are often at home, funny enough, mm-hmm. these days. Because of the pandemic, I would say <laughs> social distancing is really social distancing for our family. I always like Yardbirds. I'm a big fan of Matt's. Okay. And I always like the vibe in that place. And it's my birthday next week. And we are taking some of our closest friends. And we are in Yardbird because that's just a place I, I love right. to eat. It's simple food. It's always perfectly prepared. And... I love the vibe of that place. Will there ever be a collaboration or has there been with Yardbird? I mean, Matt and I, we go way back. We used to be neighbors in the old days. Oh, wow. So, Where was uh, that? That was in Convention Plaza when mm. they just arrived. He was still working at Zuma at the time. Mm. And then he moved, of course, to do his own stuff. So, yeah, no, he's a very good friend of mine. And Lindsay is a good friend. And uh, I love what they do. They're the coolest people on the planet. And I just love their concepts. Absolutely. What is one food that you used to love as a child in the Netherlands but can't stand to eat now? Nothing really. I, I am very, I'm a very open-minded eater. There's nothing I would not eat, you know, and I have eaten some crazy shit in my life. So, yeah, no, I eat everything. If people say we're going to try some insects, I will. Would well, you serve crazy insect food in, in amber? No, I don't think. No, because there's, there is still, there's still a cultural blockade in Hong Kong towards eating insects. So I think that that's not going to happen. What's your favorite part about Cantonese cuisine? Best one, I think the best dish, and you can have it for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, is 
a good uh, dumpling soup. So wonton noodle soup. You can have it for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Uh, you know, good good dumplings, good noodles, a great broth. I think it's one of the best. Do you chefs prefer simple food when they're eating out? Or I mean, listen, I have been. I, we are we are the culinary gypsies, so we will travel for food anywhere. You know, we have proven that. My career has been as such, but also for holiday. We 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 go to Tuscany to know more about pappardella di lepre. You know, to know more about how pappardella with with hair is made. You know, we're geeks like that. So mm. I took my children all over the planet. That's why they. Wow really spoiled brats <laughs> but for food so around the planet what is your favorite restaurant to eat at i still you know my one of my best meals ever was in michel bra when michel bra was still in the kitchen is that it was a three-star restaurant at the time in in aubrac in uh, la Guiole. and that is the the most incredible meal i have ever had mm. uh, and that's still you know i've not been back since that meal but that still stands in my mind as one of the best meals i ever had Where's your favorite city to eat? I have not a favorite city, but maybe Tokyo and Hong Kong would be a shared equal number one spot. Are you going to be visiting Tokyo anytime soon in 2023? Very soon. Very soon. Ah. <laughs> yeah, in February we'll do a little, little sure. stopover. But it is more to speak about sustainability sure. in Japan. So, sure, 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 so sure, But sure. I will definitely do a couple of, a couple of uh, restaurants. I have a lot of friends in, in Tokyo, so we have to catch up. Going back to you know the food and your connection in childhood, what is your love for Dutch food? Is there a love for Dutch food? Yes, because when I get back home, the, the first thing I want to have is something very typical Dutch. So a frikandel or some French fries or some mussels, the way we cook it in, mm. in our province, mm. I will have something like that. So when my mom used, and unfortunately she's not here anymore, but when I was already starting to work in other areas, I would come home and she said, what am I cooking for you? I would always say, make me some really nice mussels, mm. you know, that's, and we would eat in Holland some bread with it or French fries, whatever. So is yeah. there a reason why Dutch cuisine, fine dining or casual hasn't been explored or experimented with in Hong Kong? Well, there was, there was the orange tree. Uh, mm. Peter, Peter used to have the orange tree mm. uh, and now he only runs a, a junk where I think he still does do some Dutch stuff. Dutch stuff. I don't know. I just, it just, there's not a lot added to be quite sure. frankly. So, and there's a lot of restaurants popping up these days, a German restaurant and so on. And I'm, I'm, I'm always wondering how, how much of legs that would have on long term. I'm not sure. Nobody is craving for Dutch food, in my opinion, <laughs> unless you are Dutch. <laughs> so you don't want to be an educator of Dutch food in Hong Kong because people mm, will be, no, no, look at you like, yeah, no, I think there's not much to it, sure. quite frankly. If you could travel to one restaurant in the world and have dinner, where would you go tonight? Tonight, I would go to Peru and I would go to see my friend Vigilio eat in his restaurants, Central. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because Peru is incredible, it has also big mountains. I love mountains. So I would make, I would, I would always think like, I'm going there, but is there a mountain? Can I go somewhere <laughs> and, and climb? So, so yeah. How's your really nose? Nice. You, have you recovered from your my my broken nose? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I have I have absolutely werewolf blood bloods because I recovered within two weeks. So wow. in two weeks it was closed and gone, and and you can see that it's very hard yes. to see that yes, there yes, was yes, a, yes, yes. a breakage of three spots. God. Yeah. Wow. What's been the proudest moment of your career in F and B over the my proudest moment was 
basically not related necessarily to my food, but you want it to be related to food or? Tell me more about anything. It's more the moment that my kids were born. I think that's, Beautiful. that's, that's definitely. Sure. Yeah. And sure, I, sure. and I bugged my wife for 10 years to get another child and she said, no, no, no. And then Matisse was born. So that was, wow. that was an incredible moment. Yeah. What was it like growing as a family in Hong Kong? Fantastic. I mean, Hong Kong is it's the safest, most efficient city. Education is is incredible. We are very fortunate. We love we love Hong Kong. I mean, my my kids love to come home. My daughter was here for a month over Christmas. Wow. Um, my son, if he is homesick, he goes to Chinatown in New York. You know, it's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. But it, <laughs> the, it, but it fills the it, it takes the fulfillment needs of of having a quick fix. Yes, the glasses are half empty yeah yeah for sure and that's why they want to come home so that's why we're lucky what is one thing that hong kong does well with food and what is one thing that you would want to change the food i think the diversity of hong kong is what hong kong does well you know you have for any budgets for any desire you have the very best at your disposal what hong kong needs to improve I think in food, there's not much to it. I think just being not so confident about it. Maybe well, a Dutch restaurant, it needs a Dutch yeah, restaurant. No, not really, not really. I think that's not missing. But I think we are taking for granted that we're great. And I think we just need to be a little bit more boosterish. You know, if you see some of the sure. destinations in Asia who are really at the forefront in communication and really talk a lot about their city and they have, they have nothing to offer. And if you see what Hong Kong has... We just need to be a, a little bit more boosterous about ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Where's the best, most underrated area in Hong Kong to eat? Well, I think, I think just the street, the street food, the Dai Pai Dong. I mean, of course, the locals know it. But if, for a tourist, if you would come to Hong Kong, definitely the wet markets are places to discover. Mm. Because there's some really mm. incredible things mm. happening sometimes. I hope they preserve them. Yeah, yeah, that is also sometimes a little bit of a problem. Hong Kong wants to really, of course, move into the 20th century, but some part of this sort of heritage is disappearing, which sure. is one of the reasons why I came to Hong Kong. Absolutely. Know, and probably one of the reasons why people want to come to Hong Kong. So we need to keep, we need to keep that a little bit. So what is one thing you're working on right now and that you want to share with the Delish Guest List podcast? Well, we do it also. So I'm working on an amber mooncake right now. Oh, know, wow. Really, an, basically a mooncake, but that is made with the DNA of Amber. So mm. we've been thinking about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we're thinking about. It's not in the works yet, but we're thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. So that is something that my brain is occupied with. And not to be served in Amber, but to sell during the Moon Festival. Sure. Because I think that sort of with my 18 years in Hong Kong, I think I have acquired enough knowledge to be able to to do something as such. Mm. The Cantonese chef, Richard Eckerbos. Yes. And can you talk about any uh, collaboration that's happening in February? There's many. There's one that is just yesterday announced as a teaser, but I can share that because by the time this podcast is live, it's going to be there, which is basically we bring the best pizza, one of the best pizzas in the world to Hong Kong. And it's 38, pizza on the 38. It's in the Mandarin Oriental in Tokyo. It's very known. Uh, It's uh, voted best pizza in uh, Japan, one of the top pizzas in the world. I think it's 16 best pizza in the world. So so to have a Japanese pizza to come to Hong Kong, and you know, when Japanese do something, you know, they they bring it to another level. Uh, Is this a pop-up? It's a pop-up, a two-week pop-up. So they come really, it's not like a one-nighter or a two-nighter, it's two weeks. Mm. So 
and we do like an omakase pizza experience with eight different pizza, including a dessert pizza. And it's not the Nutella pizza <laughs> you see most, most. It's really cool pizza, you know. So wow, yeah, that's that's uh, that's when I will tell you very honestly. My reason to go to Tokyo was, of course, always to eat sushi, sure. Edoma style sushi, and sure, so on. Sure, sure. But one of the reasons for me to go to Tokyo is to have a pizza at a pizza bar. You know, and and it's not just not me. It's actually I I was made familiar by actually French chef Luca Fantin, who is a very famous chef in in Tokyo of Bulgari. Um, and he said if he needed to get his Italian fix, he would go there, but he would eat a pizza that is actually better than in his home country. Mm. So so that's beautiful. No wow. Italian saying that that pizza is better than it's in Italy. It's pretty yeah. amazing. And I had that pizza for the first time, and I was blown away. So and then. Think of pizza, you know, Japanese tomatoes. Everybody knows Japanese tomatoes sure, are the best sure, tomatoes sure, on the sure, planet. Sure. So imagine making a pizza with Japanese tomatoes. That's already is like pizza on steroids. Wow. Or pizza with mountain vegetables, for example. Something very, uh. very typical springy Japanese. So we're going to do some really cool things. So Hokkaido we're really looking forward. The cheese as well? Cheese, yeah. All from Hokkaido milk wow. and Hokkaido cream. So they make their own stracciatella. Oh my. So everything, it's pretty incredible. Uh, so and and Daniela himself, so the chef of behind it and his the pizzaiola of the they both will be here, which is unique because they're going through a renovation. So we took advantage of their renovation of the Mandarin Oriental Tokyo to come here and to to hijack them basically for two weeks. So starts on Valentine's Day. So if you want to really impress your date <laughs> with. And you say we're going for pizza, and she's going to be disappointed. Wait till she has At that first. Oriental. Wait till she has that first slice of pizza. She will marry you. I'm telling you, she will marry Beautiful. you in a heartbeat. Yeah, gonna have to go. And then another one is with Mei Chow. Yes, I mean, Mei is somebody I really admire. She is incredible. She's a real powerhouse. Um, we've done a collab with her in Little Bao, where we basically ambered it Little Bao. And we do it, but you need to come back and do something with us. So we're doing East meets West. So she's cooking Eastern with Western wines. And I'm cooking, of course, some style Asian wines. So, you know, the crossover of wine. So Asian wines with Western food and Asian food with Western wines. When is this collaboration? That's the 2nd of February. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And to cook with May again. She's awesome. Perfect. Yeah. And then there's many, many more really cool ones coming, but it's a little bit too early to talk about. But we have have done so many pop-ups and, you know, events in in this hotel. And that's something, it's sort of a little bit sort of the the moments of real pleasure for me to recreate an experience here, particularly because they're very unique. So, but, but, you know, we have had Ferran here from El Bui and all these great chefs what I'm now looking for is experience that have a little bit more meaning to it. So I have a little bit more depth. So um, we're looking into things that has a certain messaging as well moving forward. So that there, is, that, there is, that there is some sort of a larger picture than just a chef that comes to the city and, and cooks with me. So we're, we're trying to bring that to another level. Sure. A little bit more holistic, so to speak. Amazing. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Yeah, thank you. It was great. finger on the pulse and tap follow to keep up with the beat asia to hear more colorful chats and rich stories this episode is hosted by me ruben verabes special thanks to our lovely guest richard ecobus for joining us today 
Our producer for this episode is Marcus Truma, and we edited by Natsuki Arita. That's all for this one. See you in the next episode.